Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Well, so I think Neil, um, one of our pastors at the city, is going to be taking us through most of this series that we're coming to now in the book of Romans. Um, but Neil can't be here today, so I'm taking us through this first part. And I have to say, it feels a bit like my birthday, because this is just an amazing, wonderful passage of Scripture to be opening together. So let's pray, and let's ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, you laid down your life that we might be set free. And we want to pray that our hearts would just skip and dance and sing that awesome, life-changing truth. You know, Father God, my excitement at looking at these verses together and just a sense that if we can just grasp with the tips of our fingers the truths that you have in your word for us here, what an amazing difference that would make for us, what power that would release for us to live differently, transformed by your grace, and to both deepen our own worship and worship in this church And to spread the worship of Jesus across all of our relationships in our workplaces and our families, across Birmingham, this country and this world. Father, we pray that you would, in view of your mercy, because you are merciful, come and do those things among us now. Please speak to us, we shape our minds and set us on a trajectory of living the whole of our lives for you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would like you to imagine for me, so I'm just going to get off the squeaky part of the floor over here. It's really distracting. Um, I'd like you to imagine for me um, a prison. Now, this prison is a terrible place. Um, The inmates are all there for some of the most violent and horrible crimes. They uh, never get out. People only leave that place because they die there. Um, There aren't enough guards. It's overcrowded. So it's ruled by violence and fear. The only way that people can survive is just by being 
um, horrible to each other and brutal. Um, there are no windows. No one sees the outside world. And they've been there for so long, they've forgotten what the outside world is like. The only thing they know is life within that prison. And then one day, all of the inmates in this prison receive a letter. And they never receive letters. And some of them don't know what to do with it. They just kind of throw it aside. Others of them, they, they open it. And inside is a card. And written on the card are the words, Get out of jail free. And most of them just think it's a joke. Or you know, some kind of cruel, practical trick. They, they just they throw it away. But some of them turn it over and follow the instructions on the back. And it takes them down some corridors in the prison to a room, to the governor's office. And not only knowing what to expect, they hand over this card to the governor of the prison. And next thing they know, they've been taken outside, outside the gates, outside the high fences, outside the walls, and they're given their box of possessions, and the gate is shut behind them. And they're on the outside. And then they think, what next? What do we do now? Because all they know is life on the inside of the prison. They don't know how to live on the outside. They've forgotten what the world is like. They don't know how life works, how they're, what they're supposed to do now. I want to ask a similar question. What is the Christian life? What is it? How does it work? In the first 11 chapters of Romans, um, if you were around when we were looking through them, and the Apostle Paul, who's writing, talks about us as Christians and what God has done for us And a few times he uses the illustration of being freed from something. So in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You've been freed. You used to be condemned. You used to have this sentence of death hanging over your heads, and he has freed you from that. So now what? What does that mean for your life? What does that look like to, to live after that's happened? Or to put it another way, what motivates the Christian life? What drives it? What's it about? Now, all of us have got answers to those questions, whether you'd say you're a Christian or not. You have answers to that. You might think, well, there's no difference to the Christian life. It's just Christianity is just a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's what it is. And then you carry on your life as normal. Or you might think, well, no, no, I've got to change because I've got to pay God back. He's done something amazing for me, and now I need to repay that debt that I owe him. Or you might think, I've got to change because otherwise I might end up back in there. I've been given a blank slate and now I've got to live a better life so I don't end up back where I was before. Or maybe trying to earn God's favor or trying to make sure God gives me a good life and kind of twisting his arm behind his back by doing all the good things. Or the Christian activities. What do you think the Christian life is about? Well, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, early first century. It's a young church, it's a divided church, They've got lots of issues, particularly about how to live together. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. And the first 11 chapters, he's been reminding them of the gospel, of what God has done for them. And now he says, beginning of this passage, chapter 12, therefore. Now he's going to say what that means. The life that that message, the gospel, creates. And that's important. Because we've got so many different answers about what the Christian life is like. And presumably if it's God's message and what he says goes, when we can't make up our own answer to that. But Paul is saying here, therefore, you cannot separate that message from the life. You need to know what the Christian life looks like. And so as we look today and over the next few weeks, I want to invite you to unlearn what you think the Christian life is about. 
I want to invite you to forget what you think it is. And to learn again from scratch, like that prisoner, those prisoners coming out of that prison, how to live on the outside once you've been set free. And so we can kind of go our way through. Here's a kind of header sentence that is going to summarize what we're saying today. It's about learning to live everything, all of life, as worship for God's kindness. Learning to live everything as worship for God's kindness. And verses 1 and 2, they're like the header for these chapters that are coming up. And verse 3 to 8, that is the first section where Paul starts saying, and now this is what that looks like. This is how it works out in your life. We're going to spend most of our time in those first two verses. What is the Christian life about? First thing Paul says is God's mercy becomes fundamental. It says there, 12 verse 1, in view of God's mercy, God's mercy becomes fundamental. In other words, the Christian life is not rootless. You might look at Christians, if you're not a Christian, and think, well, that's a bit arbitrary, some rules they have to follow. Maybe they just like being religious. Maybe they like being a little bit weird, a little bit separate from the rest of society. Actually, no. What's happened is something has happened in history. And that's why we have Christianity. That's why we have the Christian life. Something has happened. And that something is God's mercy. And that's what Paul's been spending 11 chapters telling the Romans about. To try and summarize 11 chapters Um, He says, we were created for the glory of God, but we fell short. We ignored him. We suppressed the truth about him. We exchanged truth for a lie. We exchanged worshipping God, who was the creator, for worshipping created things instead. And as a result of that, we were under his wrath. We had this sentence of death over our heads. We could never get out of it, get away from it. We could never earn our way back to God, no matter how hard we tried. But God intervened. He didn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gave us his son. If you remember the language early in Romans, as a propitiation for our sins, as a sacrifice that turned away his anger, his wrath. It went on Jesus instead of on us. And we got given Jesus' goodness. Which means we're justified, given a right relationship with God, reconciled as if we had lived Jesus' life. It means we're freed from the slavery of having twisted minds and being in slavery under sin, so we couldn't choose anything else. It means we're not condemned, chapter 8. It means we're adopted as sons and daughters. It means we have God's spirit. It means we have a future, and we know that anything that happens between now and then is because God loves us, and he's using everything to do us good. Emily said about Amber Geiger, the American policewoman who's been jailed, for shooting her neighbor. She, claimed, she said that she thought she was in the wrong apartment. And so she shot um, Botham Jean, Jean sorry, as he was sitting on his sofa eating ice cream. And if you haven't watched that video, go and watch it, where in the witness impact statement, where you're meant to say just how much this has hurt and how, how terrible this thing is this person's done, Brant, his brother, looked at her and said, I don't want you to go to prison. I don't wish anything ill on you. I forgive you. I love you. And he turned to the judge and said, can I give her a hug? And there was kind of silence for a moment. And said, no, no, please, can I give her a hug? And the judge said, yes. And down they both came. And in the middle of this courtroom, he embraced his brother's killer. If you, if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. It's, it's magical. And that's a little picture of what God has done for us. Because we expected him to say, to curse her and say, go and rot in jail. Instead, 
he drew her near and embraced her. And God, who should have been against her, sending us away, saying, go and rot, instead got down from the stand and at incredible personal cost, wrapped us in his love and drew us near. That is what Paul means by the mercy of God. And he says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you. And that link there is perhaps the most important thing in in this sermon for you. The basic motivation of the Christian life is in view of God's mercy. Someone's called it the, the music of God's kindness, which should play in the background of our lives all the time. That God has been kind to me. And it's done, once for all, final, complete, assured. And so all thoughts of trying to repay God are gone. All thoughts of needing to earn his favor are gone. All wondering, will he really be kind to me, are gone. All anxieties, you look inside and you wonder, will I ever be free of the things I see inside myself, are gone. He has been kind to me. Not he will be kind to me, not I hope he'll be kind to me. He has been kind to me. That's the music that plays, should play, in the life of every Christian. Some of you have never heard that music. And that's why for you, you look at the Christian life and it doesn't make sense to you. Or it's not attractive to you. Or you think, it's just about making yourself feel good about being good. Some of you, maybe you heard it once, but you've turned it into a religion. Trying to pay God back to do better this time, or to manipulate God into giving you that good life that you want. Some of you, you're struggling to live the Christian life, because you heard that music, but it was a long time ago. And it feels like it's gone quiet, or maybe you can't hear it anymore. And if that's you, what you need to do is keep listening. Keep listening to what Paul's going to say now. But go home, take the first hour you get and open up Romans chapter 8 and spend that hour reading and praying through that until you hear the music of God's kindness. Because nothing that's said from this point on will make sense to you unless you have that music playing in your heart. Paul says God's grace becomes fundamental. You need the music of his mercy as the background music for your lives. Secondly, whole life worship becomes normal. Whole life worship becomes normal. Next thing he says, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now this is the language of worship. And he says, um, just afterwards, this is your true and proper worship. He's talking about worship. Now, what is worship? You might think, well, worship is things that we do here at church. You go to church, you sing some songs, um, maybe you don't know the words, uh, so you kind of hum along a little bit. Um, But that's what worship is. Or maybe worship is um, about a particular experience or going to a particular place, kind of special times, special places. Well, worship in English comes from the word worth-ship. It means to give worth to something, not to give it its value, but to acknowledge its value, to delight in something, to say it's wonderful, to draw attention to the worth of something. So I worship Sunday lunch when I delight in it. I worship Sunday lunch when I eat all of it, when I eat even all the sprouts, and I lick the plate clean of gravy, and when I just can't stop thanking um, Heather, my wife, for what a wonderful Sunday lunch it is, and then I put photos of it on Instagram, and all through the week I'm telling people what an amazing Sunday lunch I had. That's, that's worship. I'm drawing a, delighting in it and drawing attention to how wonderful it is. Well, Paul's using the language of worship here, and he's using the Jewish language of worship from the temple. The language of sacrifice. Because they would, in the Old Testament, they would bring an animal and offer it, present it 
as a sacrifice. It would be holy. It would be dedicated to God and pleasing to him. It's the language of worship. And he takes that language and he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He's saying the Christian life is about worship. Not about guilt. Not about debt. Not about emotional blackmail. Not about repaying anything. It is about recognizing and acknowledging God's mercy. Delighting in it. Overflowing with it. And directing attention towards it. But how do you worship? Well, Paul says, present your bodies. In other words, worshiping God includes physical bodies. Some of us think... The Christian life is the spiritual stuff. So it's all about prayer. It's all about your heart. It's all about um, your soul. It's not about the outside. And then you can take that further. And people start saying, well, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter what I do with alcohol. It doesn't matter what I do with my body in relationships. Paul says, no. Present your body. It's not just worship Jesus on the inside. He said earlier in Romans, you used to present your bodies. You used to offer your bodies like a sacrifice to worship unrighteousness, sin, things that displease God. You used to present your bodies to do what the devil wanted you to do. And saying, don't do that. Don't, don't present yourself to greed. Don't present yourself to lust and say, here I am, I'll do whatever you want me to. No, no, offer your bodies to God. It means it includes the physical. It means it's total devotion. Total, radical devotion of yourself to God. Saying, I will give all of myself to God. I will put myself completely at his disposal. Not just I will give some of me, some of my money, some of my time, some of my headspace, some of my relationships, some of my ambitions. No, I'll give God me, all of me as a living sacrifice. That's the kind of devotion that makes it possible to say, well, maybe I could risk a friend thinking I'm a bit silly and ask them, do they want to read the Bible together? Maybe I could risk giving away a little bit more of my resources to the church, to other gospel causes. Maybe I could risk moving to a different part of town to go to somewhere where there's a church plant where it needs people to go and support it. Maybe I could give up a promising career in medicine or law to go and do overseas mission. It's why so many of you in this church pray and give and support ministries that don't directly benefit you. Because we want to see Jesus worshipped. We want to see the worship of Jesus deepen and widen. Total devotion. But it also means that worship is bigger than you think. It's wider than you think. Worship includes the whole of life. Is what Paul's saying here. For the Jews, worship was localized. You went to the temple. You did the sacrifices. You did the rituals. You made yourself ceremony cleaned. You did the festivals it was localized in a time and a place. And for us, we think worship, that's, okay, I go to church. If I'm really you know, keen, I'll come to the evening service. I might stay for student plus if I'm a student. I might go to home group. I might go on a ministry team. And we kind of layer up the activities, the kind of time and place of worship. Paul is now saying, offer your bodies. And when he says bodies, he doesn't just mean, he doesn't just mean physical bodies. It includes that. But he's saying everything that you do as a physical embodied person in a physical world Someone said, everything you do, everything you say, on every day of the week, with everyone you know, wherever you are, it is all now to be worship. All to be about recognizing God's mercy and drawing attention to God's mercy. 
And that's kind of against our thinking because we split life up naturally. If you're a Christian, you, or maybe if you're not a Christian, you, you will tend to think these bits of my life are the, the God bits, the spiritual bits, the Sunday bits. You know, I'm a, I'm a student plus leader or I, you know, I lead in CU or I, I'm on the, in the music group. Or you know, when I'm reading my children Bible stories in the evening, that, that's, the, that's the spiritual bit. But then over here, we have the rest of things. Like, um, this is where I wash the dishes. This is where I go to work. This is where I have hobbies. That's the kind of stuff God isn't really interested in. Paul says that's not true. All of it, all of it, everything we do is meant to be worship. Not just Sunday, not just church. Everything in every sphere of our lives is to be worship to God. And nothing you do, think, say, or feel ever falls outside of that. And that has huge significance. Because it means that everything you do tomorrow has the potential to be worshipped to God. Whether that's changing a nappy, reading a book, filling in a tax return, cooking spaghetti, playing football, diagnosing a patient. Now, don't get me wrong, it includes the things we think of as spiritual. So it, it definitely includes working so you can earn money to support gospel causes. It includes being a good witness to your friends and your colleagues. But it's more than that. It's wider than that. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian and prime minister, declared, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. Jesus is Lord over all of our lives. Now, I just want to guard us here a little bit because you can misunderstand that. And I have had, a few years ago, I had a student say to me, well, I don't need to come to church because um, someone told me that I can worship God in the whole of my life. And so I worship God on the football field. So that's where I go on a Sunday. That is a really bad misunderstanding of this. It's not the church is the really spiritual bit but it is the centre of the Christian life. It is where our out-there worship gets gathered together and expressed corporately, realigned, reset, recentered to make sure that what we're doing out there is the worship of Jesus. Because if we're not doing that, then our worship out there will very quickly become worship of other things. Worship of ourselves, of our careers, of our social standing, whatever it might be. It's not saying you can just worship out there and that means you don't need church, you don't need corporate worship. That's not true at all. But it does say that everything has the potential to be worshipped for God and it should be worshipped for God. And in view of God's mercy, that just becomes normal. Paul says this is your true and proper worship. And the word he uses there, logikos, it, it seems kind of rational, logical. It makes sense. When you get God's mercy, when you understand what he's done for you, when you understand that you have been freed you just go, well, that's, that's the obvious thing to do. I'm finally free to embrace and to love the one I was made for. So why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I give the whole of myself in worship to him? Because he is so wonderful. And the question is, how do we do that? Um, another theologian, Don Carson, said, the heart of genuine worship is working out in every aspect of our lives the confession, Jesus is Lord. Saying, what does it mean in this part of my life, for Jesus to be Lord. In human resources, in the arts, in engineering, on the ward round, at dinner time with the kids, or with my flatmates. 
How do we work that out? Well, moving on, this is why, third point, a renewed mind becomes essential. A renewed mind becomes essential. This is verse 2. Now, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a car mechanic at all. I was very pleased the other day when I replaced the battery in the car. It took me a little while, but I got there, and the car worked, and I was, I was dead chuffed with that. Anything more than that is not my thing. But I do know that cars have computers in these days, apparently. And once, I even bought the little kind of plug-in-y Bluetooth thing that you could plug into the car computer, and it could tell you all the error codes and things that were going wrong inside your car, and it was terrifying. Don't do it if you don't want to know what's going wrong inside your car. But there's another machine, and if you go to the garage, they, they can do this for you, that doesn't just read your car's computer, but can reprogram it. And can, it's called remapping it, to make it behave differently, to change the way it thinks, to change the way it views itself. You can even tell it that bits of the car aren't there anymore. You can change the way it thinks about itself, the way it interacts with the world. Dead clever. Roman says, we've got a problem and we need remapping. Because our thinking, our minds, our attitudes, our hearts are twisted, naturally. We are profoundly anti-God in our approach to life, naturally. Paul talks about us having debased minds. Minds that are corrupted, darkened. He talks about our, our thinking and our feeling being turned upside down from what it should be. And so that we can't even recognize what's good. Can't accept it, much, le- much less love it. And so even when God gave, us, gave the Jews the law of how they should live, to, to show them how they should live, they took that and they twisted it into something deadly because they had twisted minds. Because we have twisted minds. That's what we do. But going back to our prison at the beginning, once you've been set free from that, you need to learn how to live. You need to know if we're going to worship God in the whole of our lives, how to please him. How do we worship him with the whole of our lives? For the Jews, it was somewhat easy. They had the law. That told you how you worship God. Follow those laws and you're worshiping God rightly. Paul's saying, the worship of God is now everything. Now, how are you going to have a law that's big enough for that? How, how are you going to... How many volumes would you have to have for law to cover pleasing God in the whole of your life? And our relationship with that law has changed anyway. So that's not how God wants to do it. He wants to renew our minds. A different way of working so that we think Christianly about everything. And he started doing that. He started remapping us by his spirit. So Paul talks in chapter 8 about our old minds and how we couldn't please God in our old minds, but we're not in that anymore. We've been taken out of that. Now we're in a new zone, a new world with new minds that can please God. He's, if you like, he's, he's plugged us in to that machine, to the gospel that has rewritten our, our programs, that's taken out the viruses so we can know truth, love truth, accept what he says. But it's an ongoing process. And here he's saying we can cooperate with that or not. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Don't be chameleons. Don't just blend in with what, how the world thinks about things. Don't accept the old ways that the world around you will still be twisting truth. Will still be suppressing truth. And if you take your cue from that from your workmates, from TV, from Facebook, from school friends, if you let that shape your thinking about what it means to be human, 
about what it means to live well, about what it means to know God, you are going to be conformed back to the world. Exactly where you've just come from. And so Paul says, don't conform. Don't be chameleon. Be transformed. Be transformed. Now that's the same word when you see Jesus in the Gospels being transfigured. And his face starts to shine. You see his glory. Paul uses that word. says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By your thinking changing. By plugging in to God's word so that the Holy Spirit changes how you think about everything. And that is an ongoing thing if we cooperate with it. I know you say there's no other option. You're either conformed or you're transformed. You're doing one or the other. If you're not being transformed, you're conforming. And we know that, don't we? If you're a Christian, then, as I say, for a few weeks, you, you're not reading the Bible. You're not engaging with church. You're not kind of listening to what Christian friends are telling you. And you start to change. The way you think starts to change. The way you view people. The way you do relationships. Your emotional reactions to things. Your, the way you try and pray. Everything changes. Why? Because you're not being transformed. You're not having your mind renewed. You become bitter and cynical and hard. As Christians, we constantly need to make sure we're renewing our minds. Always. So this is why we study the Bible lots. This is why every week we have a sermon on the Bible. It's why we have home groups in the week. It's why, as part of why we have home groups in the week, it's why we study the Bible there. It's why we study the Bible at Student Plus, at 20s and 30s. Because we're plugging in by God's Spirit to his word so he can remap us so that we know how to worship him, so that we know, in the words of verse 2, what is his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, how we can worship him with the whole of our lives. Um, Ellie was telling us about deeper with the students. That's why we teach things like Christian ethics. It's why we teach doctrine. We're not geeking out for the fun of it. It's because we need to have our minds transformed. It's why we do marriage prep with newly engaged couples. So they don't just take on the values of the world, but are transformed in their minds about how to please God in this new stage of life. It's why we teach on relationships and money. Because we need to know what it looks like to have Jesus as Lord. And if you're not renewing your mind, you're conforming back to where you came from. It doesn't mean you have to be really academic. It doesn't mean you have to read loads of books. Although, if that is you... If you are, you know, if that's something you can do and engage with, then do. Renew your mind. Read lots. But what it means for everyone is we should have an expectation that throughout the Christian life we are continuously growing in our knowledge of what it means to please God. When we come to study God's word for ourselves and pray, we should have an expectation that I am here to have my mind renewed by God's spirit. When I sit and listen to a sermon... I'm not thinking, oh, well, here's half an hour to get through. I'm thinking, this is a chance for me to plug in, to have God renew my mind, so I know how to live for him, I know how to please him. Pursuing a renewed mind becomes essential. Now, those things are like, they're the header for the chapters that are coming. God's mercy is fundamental, whole life worship is normal, renewed mind is essential. And now what Paul does for the next two chapters is he fleshes out what that means, what that looks like. And we're very quickly going to look at these first few verses, verses 3 to 8. Let's go back to those prisoners who we left outside the prison camp. They've only ever known how to relate on fear and brutality. But now they're outside the prison, they need a new way of relating to one another. In Rome, where Paul is writing, um, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. 
at least Jews who become Christians, and Gentiles, non-Jews, who become Christians. And in 41 AD, the Jews were all kicked out of Rome because Emperor Claudius hated them. Twelve years later, they were allowed back, but they found that the church was doing fine without them. They didn't have that, they didn't belong anymore. And that's the backdrop to the book of Romans, that these two groups of people needed to learn how to live with one another again. And one of the biggest priorities Paul has is that they would live together, not along ethnic lines, not along social lines, but as a new people formed by God's grace who oozed God's grace. He'd poke them and they would just ooze grace. And the first thing we see that Paul says here is serving one another becomes central. Living together as God's new people, serving together becomes central. Look quickly at verse 3. He says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. You Jews, you're going to be saying, well, we're more important because we were here first in God's plan. We were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles, you're going to be thinking, well, no, no, you Jews, you messed it up. That's why we got in in the first place because God, you, you, you messed it up so God came to us. And they're both thinking we're more important. And Paul says, don't think of yourselves like that. Have a renewed mind. Think of yourselves rightly in line with what God has done in accordance with the faith he has given you. In other words, God gave that to you. That's not from you. God gave that to you. He says four times, think. So don't think of yourself, literally with kind of overthinking, but think of yourself with sensible thinking, sober thinking. He goes on, verse 4, because you're a body. Just like a body has many members, not all the same, so in Christ you're all one body. You belong to each other. He says, look around the room. And you, I welcome you if you want to, to look around the room. Um, people here who are Christians, you are hands and feet and eyes and noses and ears in the same body. And hands don't say to feet, well, I'm more important than you. Feet don't say to, I don't know, the left knee, well, you're not very important. The tonsils don't go on a power trip and start saying how they're the most important in the body. And they don't all look down on the appendix and go, well, we've no idea what you're doing, so you're not important. No, no, all of the body works together. It exists for the flourishing of the rest of the body. Not to make itself bigger and better, but so that the body thrives. And Paul says, that's you. That's what God has done in you. And he talks about gifts. These natural or supernatural abilities given by God. Why does he talk about gifts? Because as soon as we start talking about gifts in church, you know what we do? We start comparing. And we say, well, well, I'm a better musician than that person, so I'm more important than them. Or, ah, I'm a Bible study leader. You're just, you just serve coffee. And we think, I'm more important. You do it, I do it. We all do it. It's like what my children do when someone gives them gifts. They straight away, mine's better, mine's bigger. I don't want the red one, I want that one. Paul says to them, grow up. These gifts, they're not from you. They're not for you. They're for the body. You've got a gift, great. It's not yours. It belongs to the body. So use it for the body. He says, you got gifts? Fine. You, you can prophesy. You can speak and apply God's truth powerfully into people's situations and lives. Great. Use it in dependence on God. You have a gift of service, of giving yourself your energy, your time to, to help and build up other people. Great, do it. You can teach. 
Fantastic, do it. You can exhort and encourage and help people to keep going. Fantastic, do that. You can give. You've been given resources to contribute to the life of the church. Do it. Do it generously. That's a gift. You can do acts of mercy. You can lead. Do these things, but do them for the body. Not to make yourself look good. Not to go on a power trip. Not to go, well, then I'm I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. Serve one another humbly. Because you're a body. Renew your mind. Think. You're a body. Think of yourself rightly, and then you'll please God in the way you live. And if you haven't got those gifts in this this list, that's not the point. You're not meant to think, well, then I can't serve. The point is, whatever you've got, because you have got something, use it to build up the body and to bless the church. That's why we talk a lot about serving a city. It's why we have booklets like this one, outlining ways you can serve in the church. Not because we're empire building, but because true worship will always include using what you have to serve God's body. And just as we draw to close, can I just say we see this at City Church? I mean, I'm in a privileged position that I see a lot of what happens, and there is so much of this going on. Last week at the 20th anniversary celebration, so many people worked so hard to make all that happen, to feed 500 people. Um, That's quite an undertaking, and so many people made that happen. To look after the children, um, and so they had their own celebration while the adults were in the other hall. To do so many things that happened that day, and... It was all done cheerfully. It was all done graciously. Not, not because the pastors told us to. I know we joke about that. But because of Jesus. Because we're worshipping him. I had the privilege this week of spending some time with um, the music leaders. Those who lead the, the music team. And with some of our student team leaders. And there are so many people in this church who just love the church. Who love serving and using their gifts who are passionate about what they do and not at all precious and never ask for recognition. And that's beautiful. That is exactly what Paul's talking about here. One particular person, I won't name them, but I spoke to them in the week because they they spent hours of their own time getting something ready for last week, for last Sunday. They put so much of their own effort and love into making something wonderful and beautiful that we thought was going to be used last week and then it wasn't used. And I rang this person up in the week and said, I'm so sorry. And they said doesn't matter. I don't do it for myself. That's the kind of attitude Paul's talking about here. Serving one another humbly in worship for Jesus. Well, that's just one example of how this works out for us as Christians in church life. So as we close, let me just ask for you. If you've been wondering, what is the Christian life? Maybe you're looking in from the outside. Maybe you're in the Christian life thinking, is this it? Have I got the right thing? It's not just more of the same with a bigger rule book. It's not a get out of hell free card that doesn't affect you and change you. It's a life based on something solid. Something wonderful. Radically shaping your life around God's mercy. It's a life that starts and ends with worship. Not with duty or emotional blackmail or drudgery. It's a life where you're never standing still with your rule book checking off what you're doing, but always being remade, reconstructed, remapped so you can please God in everything you do. And it's a life in a community that's shaped by God's kindness and so oozes grace and serves one another. And do come back as we keep on looking at the book of Romans so we can learn together how to live all of our lives, everything, as worship for God's mercy.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus. That you have taken your enemies and wrapped us in your love. In view of that mercy, we want to present ourselves, our bodies, our lives, our intellects, our feelings, our jobs, our relationships, everything that we are, to you as living sacrifices, as worship to you. Please, will you be working out these things that we have um, said and heard in the life of your church and in our lives as we go out into this week. Amen.